I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, continuing our little series of sermons on Acts 1 and 2. Today will be the last one for a little while, concluding then Peter's address to the crowds of Jews in Jerusalem and their response and his interaction with them. The focus will be on verses 37 through 41. I want to just begin at verse 36, the last uh, verse, words of his sermon, kind of the climax of his sermon. The Spirit then through Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So far, our text... In response to the preaching, we'll sing two songs, Psalm 11, which is a psalm expressing refuge in the Lord God, and we'll combine that with hymn 17, which shows the connection between the promises to Abraham and the promises uh, fulfilled in Christ. Hymn 17 stands as 3, 5, and 6. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we saw that God has one plan. Peter unfolds that in the first part of his sermon, one marvelous story of salvation, all centering on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah promised long ago to Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is Israel's king. And this Jesus tells Peter, he now reigns supreme in heaven on the throne of David at his father's right hand. And on Pentecost Day, remember we're dealing here with Pentecost Day, King Jesus poured out His Spirit to restore and renew Israel and eventually expand Israel to include the Gentiles, Gentiles like ourselves. The Apostle Peter is doing the speaking in Acts 2, but we need to recall that all of the apostles were appointed by Christ to be His spokesmen, and the apostles were filled with the Spirit of Christ for that task. So, 
when Peter is speaking, and especially on this Pentecost day, we need to understand it's really King Jesus speaking. King Jesus, son of David, is addressing his covenant people. And he has a message for them, which continues to echo through the centuries to his people still today. And I bring you that message of our ascended Lord under this theme. King Jesus calls Israel to repent and be baptized in his name. King Jesus calls Israel to repent and be baptized in his name. We'll see two things, the king's promise and the king's deliverance. Well, the voice of King Jesus rings very loud and powerfully through Peter as he brings his sermon to a climax in verse 36. He doesn't pull any punches when he addresses the Israelites. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Just imagine the impact of that for a moment if you were a Jew listening to Peter that day. You were one of the Jews then living in or around Jerusalem who had at some earlier point seen Jesus heal people, seen Him touch them for their benefit, seen Him cast out demons, even raise the dead. You were one of the Jews who had come out to see Him with curiosity in times past, perhaps excitement and hope, but later on you became disillusioned with this Jesus of Nazareth. You started to side with what the chief priests were saying about him. And those other leaders, they, they spoke ill of that rabbi. They put down Jesus of Nazareth. They said he was a danger to the nation. They called for Jesus to be silenced. And as one of the, the Jews in the crowd, you started to buy into that. Imagine then that you had been one of the Jews, even uh, among the crowds of Jews outside of Pilate's courtroom just a few weeks earlier, demanding that Jesus be sentenced to death. And you were there shouting with all the people, crucify Him, crucify Him. This is the crowd that Peter is addressing. Imagine that you were part of those responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross. How would Peter's words strike you then? What feelings would come up in your heart? Well, brothers and sisters, we don't actually have to imagine this truth because in reality, you and I are also responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross. The Jews, it's true, they were there on the ground in the flesh historically along with the Romans, but remember, what happened there is all part of God's one story to save sinners like us. Jesus was sent by the Father to be born in Bethlehem, to be raised in Nazareth, to be baptized by John in the Jordan River and by the Holy Spirit. He was sent to minister to Israel for three years and then to be put to death on a cross, not just for the sins of several thousand Israelites, but for the sins of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. Jews and Gentiles from all times and places that God would call to Himself. In other words, you and I were the cause 
of Jesus' death, ultimately, as much as those Jews were. Each of us can sing. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew the sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. It was just as if you and I were there, sharing in the crime. As the hymn says it, it was my sin that held him there on the cross until it was accomplished. What's the it? The complete payment for all of my sin. The total salvation of my life. You and I put Jesus on the cross as much as the Jews. Well, if that resonates with you, If that hits you deep inside, you will understand how it hit the crowds. Verse 38 of our text. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you see how powerful and how effective the voice of King Jesus is? This is the king sending out his word through his messenger, Peter, a word which addresses the crowd of Israelites about their sin, and suddenly thousands of Jews who had once rejected Jesus, they are now suddenly ashamed of themselves. They are cut to the heart. And Peter doesn't use any soft sell in this. The preaching of the gospel does not come mincing words, and it never avoids talking about sin. In fact... Peter puts their sin, their rebellion, their guilt boldly in front of them. He he just lays it bare, and their guilt hits them smack between the eyes. And they are moved to cry out for help. What can this be, brothers and sisters, but the working of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? You can't explain that any other way. Brothers and sisters, let's you and I have faith. Faith in the pure, faithful preaching of the gospel that it will work. Why? Because King Jesus gives His Word power to work. That's why. People are not converted by eloquence, by human method. Hearts are not changed by our cleverness, not by the force of personality of the preacher or our programs or strategies or whatever else, but hearts are changed by the convicting power of the gospel through the working of the Holy Spirit, a gospel which says to every human being that hears it, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Go to Him. When the King's message goes out, when the King speaks, His people, His elect, They will listen. We don't have to worry about that. We just have to get the message out. And those people are listening. These people who before had no time for Jesus some weeks earlier, they ask, brothers, what shall we do? Can you hear the the softness of their hearts in that reply? Brothers, You know, later in the book of Acts, the leaders of the Jews, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they will also address the apostles, but they never call them brothers. 
They are too filled with hostility and anger and resentment. But this crowd of Israelites, they are already being won over to their Messiah King by the convicting power of His Word. And so, with broken heart and contrite heart, they, the spirit of Psalm 51, they ask in desperation, brothers, what shall we do? We understand what you're telling us. We recognize our guilt. We admit we were the ones who were in the crowd who sent Jesus our very own king, to the cross. We've done that. What, what shall we do? Is there anything to be done? It's the same conviction you and I and everyone needs to have. Lord, I, I am guilty of sin. I have a heart that naturally hates my Creator, it caused the death of His only begotten Son. I put Him on the cross. What shall I do? Is there any hope for me? That's the sense of their question. We've crucified the Christ. We're doomed to death for that. Is there any way out? And then the King comes with a word of grace through His servant. Verse 38, the way out is this, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Imagine once more the feeling of the, the Jews in that crowd on that day hearing those words. They have just understood the enormity of their wrongdoing. They have understood their act of hatred toward their covenant God and His Messiah. They feel the burden of their sin, and then they hear the King of Israel say to them, you can have all your sins forgiven. Repent and be baptized into my name, and your sins will be forgiven. King Jesus is saying to his people, though you hated me, though you insulted me, though you injured me and murdered me, yet the reason I went through it all was to pay off your debt of sin. Though you were an enemy to me, my people, I was being a friend to you. And so now I hold out to you the cancellation of all your debt of sin. I offer you the forgiveness of your sins. Change your mind. Change your heart. Come into my kingdom and be my child. Isn't that incredible grace for the king whom they slaughtered, to now come back to them with that message? Come back to us with that message? Come into my kingdom. That's really the significance of being baptized into the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Baptism is a symbol of washing, spiritual washing. John the baptizer was already doing this to prepare Israel for the arrival of the Messiah. You remember how people would come to John at the River Jordan, 
confessing their sins in sincerity of heart, and then he would baptize them there as a sign that indeed God had washed away their sin. But John is never said to baptize anyone into someone's name. He doesn't appear to have baptized into anyone's name. With Jesus, this is different. After Christ completed His work on the cross, He gave a command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear it again in a a little while, said over Blair, Victoria. To be baptized into the name of someone is to be placed under that person's authority. So, Being baptized into the name of the triune God means we have the name of God on our head and we are under His authority. Christian baptism explicitly acknowledges the authority of God and since it is the will of the triune God for Jesus to rule on the throne of David as Almighty King, Peter, he cuts to the chase, he shortens the reference to being baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. This was key. This was brand new, especially for those Jews who had earlier rejected this Jesus, didn't want to hear about Him as King. Their repentance would be demonstrated by submitting to baptism in the name of the very person whom they helped to crucify. Think about what that would do for them and and what that meant for them. It was a public act in the midst of Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees would be watching and would be condemning of that act because they hated the name of Jesus. It was an act with consequences. They would be booted out of the the temple. It was an act where they would commit themselves and their children to serve King Jesus, recognizing Him as the Messiah that they had earlier rejected. They would commit themselves and their children to Israel's king. I mentioned the children. Now, children are mentioned in verse 39, but even before we get to verse 39, let's place ourselves in the mindset of the Israelites hearing this sermon of Peter. Being Israelites, these people, of course, are already in covenant with God. They've been in covenant with God for centuries, for all the time of their existence as a nation. That's all they've ever known. God has been their king over their entire nation, from tiny tot to the most frail senior citizen. God has always extended His covenant to the offspring to the babies of His people. In fact, the very conception and birth of these babies were blessings that God promised in the covenant. We sing it, and we sang it last week, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord. This is the mindset of the Jews. These are all Jews. So when Peter says to the crowds that they should repent and be baptized in the name of their newly crowned Messiah King, Jesus, when he says that they should acknowledge the authority of King Jesus and submit to the authority of Israel's King, 
and do so by the act of baptism, would it even cross their minds not to include their teenagers, their preteens, their small children, their babies? Peter is not addressing in this sermon merely adults. There's no singling out anywhere in this sermon of a segment of the Israelites, for look at how he addresses the audience at the end of his sermon, verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel know. What is that, the house of Israel? Is that just the, the believing persons? Is that just the adult believers? No, that's everybody. Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 31, uses the same expression. The new covenant is for the house of Israel. And house is the same as nation, same as people. It includes everybody from the littlest child to the oldest adult. The collective people of God, His holy nation is being addressed. Is the Messiah, is the Christ, is He not king over Israel's babies as well as Israel's adults? If Jesus sits on David's throne and he reigns over God's people on God's behalf, if King Jesus is busy renewing Israel, then all of God's renewed people must be baptized into his name, those who repent together with their children. To every Israelite standing before Peter, this would have been their default understanding. This was how they always thought through the centuries. They could not have conceived of the idea that dad and mom would be baptized and recognize King Jesus, but not the children. That would have been utterly, utterly foreign to them. Well, you might ask, how can the command of verse 38 to repent apply to small children? How does that apply to babies? Well, it applies to the babies and the small children the same way it applied to them all through the Old Covenant period, all through Israel's earlier history. All the commands of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, they apply to all of God's covenant people regardless of their age. Moses taught this in Deuteronomy 6 right after he gives the Ten Commandments a second time. He says to the people, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. When you walk, when you rise, when you lie down, when you get up, teach them to your little ones. Those little ones, of course, had to be instructed in the commandments they had to be trained and disciplined by their parents to walk in those commandments. And as they grew up, by the working of the Spirit in them, they would come to live a repentant life. Walking in the commandments is the life of repentance. All along, they were regarded, those children were regarded as, they were treated as subjects of the king. They were treated as children in covenant with God. And they had responsibilities and obligations were placed on the children. And they were taught from little on. They were taught the way of repentance. The truth is that every generation of Israelites was required to embrace the Lord God 
as their king. They were required to love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. They were required to walk in daily repentance before him. Just a little bit later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds Israel of this. Chapter 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. The Lord set His heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring, that's the kids, after them. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That was the understanding that the Israelites of old were to grow up with. Every circumcised child, every covenant child grew up knowing that they were required to give their heart to the Lord to submit to Him, to obey Him with their whole being, to walk in daily repentance before Him. That was their obligation as part of God's family, as a member of the house of Israel, one of the people of God. And that is still the privilege and the calling of children like Blair Victoria Whiskey today. Because that little baby is the heritage of the Lord given to you, Matt. And you, Rachel, a beautiful heritage. By grace, Matt and Rachel have grown up as covenant children in their own parental homes. They've grown up to bow the knee to King Jesus. They have given their hearts to Jesus as Lord and Christ. And so the baby that God gives to them is also in covenant with King Jesus also the new covenant he established at his death. So Matt and Rachel, teach your daughter about her great and awesome king. Instruct her about her Savior and all that he's done for her and all that she is required to do in response to love. Love her Lord with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind. Teacher, as the form puts it, to also detest herself because of the sin and seek her cleansing outside of herself in Christ. When you understand the long history of God's covenant dealing with Israel, treating them always as a nation, as one family, then the language that Peter uses in the first part of verse 39 is very, very natural. The Jews would have picked up on that and understood that very easily. Peter says, for the promise is for you and for your children. He mentions the promise and those who receive the promise. What promise exactly is he referring to? Well, that's found in verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No doubt the forgiveness of sins is included in this gift, but the, the gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit is singled out for special mention because it's one of the special promises of the new covenant in Christ's blood. 
It's one of the great blessings promised by Christ to His disciples. Already back in Acts 1 verse 4, and it occurs in Acts 24, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's coming to dwell in the hearts of God's people. Remember we saw that, young and old alike, male and female. The Spirit's taking up residence and working His transforming power in each heart like never before. This is the promise for believers, those who repent, and their children. The renewed Israel of God, the Jews who come to faith, and their children, under the new covenant prophesied about in Jeremiah 31, a new covenant to the house of Israel, they receive the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of them and do what Jeremiah said, write the law of God on their hearts. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the law of God was there. Where was it written? You notice that the, the New Covenant doesn't have a new law. It has a new location for the law. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on the tablets of stone, right? And it was put into the ark and was taught to the people. But now, says Jeremiah 31, and the New Testament confirms that, with the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit writes the law on the hearts of God's people, young and old alike. It finally gets emblazoned here, and it starts to work through mind and soul and outworking in our lifestyle. That is the, the huge blessing of the new covenant. This is what Paul teaches in Galatians 3 as well. I wonder if you would turn there with me for a moment to Galatians 3. That's page 1237. The uh, Galatian churches were made up of both Jew and Gentile Christians. And look at how Paul describes the Christians, regardless of their biological descent, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Christians are sons and daughters of Abraham. That's the same as saying Christians are the renewed Israel of God. Actually, Paul uses that expression, Galatians 6, verse 16. He calls the churches there the Israel of God. But now back to Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul continues, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see that? The gospel was preached to Abraham. And the, the churches being gathered in Galatia are sons and daughters of Abraham, just like the church in Ancaster is filled with sons and daughters of Abraham. One story, brothers and sisters, one story. The old covenant is continued in the new. It is refreshed and made truly effective in the coming of Jesus. The new covenant is the old covenant made new. 
In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, writes the apostle, comes to the Gentiles. And that blessing includes the promised Holy Spirit through faith. That comes in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. That's a direct connection with Acts 2 and Peter's promise that the spirit is for you and for your children. This promise of the Holy Spirit. And Paul adds here in Galatians 3, it's a promise that comes through faith or is received through faith. Let me emphasize that too for a moment. None of God's promises have ever been automatically fulfilled to God's people without God's people accepting those promises in true faith. In other words, no circumcised Israelite, if we go back to the Old Covenant, no circumcised Israelite was forgiven their sin while they rejected God in unbelief. Similarly, in the New Covenant, no baptized Canadian Reformed person or person from any church has been forgiven of their sin while rejecting Jesus Christ in unbelief. It doesn't happen. The receipt of the promise is a beautiful, wonderful privilege, but it requires faith to benefit from the promise. The promise of forgiveness is sealed to us in baptism. The promise of the Holy Spirit is sealed to us and our children in baptism. It's theirs to be experienced. Every baptized person has the promise sealed and signified to them. It's theirs to be experienced and enjoyed, but... Every baptized child needs to accept the covenant promises in true faith. Just like the Israelites, otherwise just like the Israelites who rejected Peter's message, and there were a number of them who rejected the message, they will be destroyed in God's judgment. Let's be very clear about that. There's nothing automatic about salvation when you receive the promises of God you and I must repent in faith each day, and our children must do that as they grow up. The promise is for you and for your children, says the king. Very familiar covenantal language. God in the old covenant says those same words to Abraham. He repeats them to Isaac. He repeats them to Jacob and to the nation of Israel time and again. It's what Peter says next that would be strange to the ears of these Jews. And the promise is for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. What's that mean? All who are far off. Well, when you look back in the prophecies of the Old Testament and even the Psalms, you can find that expression and similar expressions used to refer to the Gentiles. 
And Peter is hooking back into what Jesus had said to the apostles in Acts 1 verse 8, that the apostles should be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and, quote, to the ends of the earth. That's the equivalent of all who are far off. Gentile nations were pictured very often as being at a distance, being far away from Israel, Isaiah 5, 26. They were often called the coastlands, far away in the distant, on the distant seas. They were peoples that most Jews had only ever heard about but had never actually seen, places they had never been. So Peter is announcing to this, this crowd of now humble and flabbergasted Jews that not only is forgiveness offered to them, murderers of the Messiah, not only is the Holy Spirit offered to them, former rejectors of the Messiah, but the same forgiveness and the same Spirit of God is actually being offered for the first time freely, openly, unhindered to all the peoples of the earth. The order is to the Jew first and to the Gentile, as Paul will say multiple times in the letter to the Romans. The Jew first and the Gentile. Next, the new covenant promise of the Spirit is for the repentant Israelite and their children, as well as to the repentant Gentile and their children. The new covenant, brothers and sisters, does not take away any of the riches of the old covenant. It doesn't suddenly exclude our babies. It only adds to the wealth and piles up the grace. And grace there is. Invincible grace, even, of King Jesus to overcome the hard hearts and deliver His chosen people from their damnation. Notice how toward the end of our text there is a division among the Israelites listening to Peter, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The nation of Israel as a whole is described as a crooked generation. Jesus himself described them this way in Matthew 12, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. They were a crooked and twisted generation. And this wasn't a recent phenomenon, like, oh, wow, this particular generation was, must have been really bad. No. The Bible reveals that Israel's character from its very birth as a nation was a crooked and perverse generation. Moses writes about it in his song, Deuteronomy 32. Verse 5, they have dealt, as the Israelites, they have dealt corruptly with Him, the Lord. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Just think of how the Israelites coming up out of Egypt, how they treated the Lord in the desert. Think of how the, Lord, the, the people treated the Lord in the days of the judges and in the days of the kings. If you look at all the generations of the Israelites you can well understand that the Lord describes them as a crooked and perverse generation. Paul will later on say in Romans 9, verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's an Israel within the Israel. And every generation the Lord sifts out who His real people are. Jesus Himself preached to these Israelites 
for three years, yet they rejected him. They considered him an enemy. They, they resisted the Son of God. Yet upon Jesus' ascension and his coronation as king, King Jesus sends forth his mighty spirit and his powerful word through Peter, and he comes back to those same people. He delivers a, <clears throat> he delivers a message to them, and in so doing, he brings them to salvation. He saves some of them from the crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Brother Koss this morning spoke about a wave of grace. Well, I think we have here a, a whole tidal wave of grace coming over the Israelites. These were covenant children, previously hateful toward Jesus, and yet now 3,000 of them, they come to their knees in humility and contrite hearts. Brothers and sisters, do you see how Jesus, your Savior, the kind of grace He has? Do you see the kind of perseverance He has to chase after His elect? Do you see the kind of power He has to grab hold of them at a time of His choosing to make them believe and submit Brothers and sisters, no matter how far those elect covenant children have wandered, no matter how callous their hearts have become, the Lord Jesus is always able to bring them back. They're not beyond reach, His reach. So put your hope in Him. And one day he brought back 3,000 lost souls. He has saved the 280 plus souls in this congregation. And if he wills, he can certainly save that hard-hearted person that's going through your thoughts right now. The covenant child who's drifted away. He can save them. This mighty king has done a mighty thing for Israel, and he's done a mighty thing for you and for me personally. Believe his promise, brothers and sisters, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, and then take your joy in his deliverance. Amen. Mm -hmm.